Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. We're here with Azura Crispino, who happens to be the media co-chair of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. And as you folks know, we have been following a story, actually uh, have brought out some new material on a story that we have introduced as the prison slave labor story. The reason Manufacturing Talk Radio is doing it is really on, on two fronts. The first is because the prison system has developed a manufacturing operation within prisons around the country that directly compete with jobs in the private sector. There have been a lot of manufacturing jobs lost to this, uh, what we call, unfair competition. And on a personal level, both Lou and I, are, you know, our blood gets boiling when we see that we really have, because of the 13th Amendment, uh, the allowance for slave labor, which we really didn't pay much attention to uh, when, when this, until the story began to erupt and we looked back and said, oh, my gosh, they're actually using the 13th Amendment. We were both shocked about it. So, Azura, welcome to the show, and if you could give the folks kind of a, a quick synopsis of what's happening on September 9th. So September 9th is the 45th anniversary of the Attica Uprising, and to commemorate that date, prisoners all over the country and their outside supporters are kicking off a national strike. So the strike is going to involve prisoners refusing to show up to their manufacturing jobs as well as other jobs that they perform inside of prison walls but also in over 50 cities across the country and in certain cases around the world, outside organizers are throwing protests all the way from protesting the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to holding noise demonstrations at youth detention centers, immigration detention centers, state jails and prisons, city and county jails, federal prisons, but also going to protest the corporations that use prison labor. So this is truly an unprecedented day of action, which is to kick off a major labor strike, which I think will continue into next year. Wow. It's a long period of time. Uh, Certainly we're following the story because we're interested in uh, its impact on the uh, the prison manufacturing operation. Uh, what's your familiarity, Azura, with uh, manufacturing in prisons and, and the use of labor, uh, inmate labor, at ridiculous uh, wage rates, if any wages at all? Most of the time, it's no wages at all. Um, you know, we hear 14 cents an hour being bandied about from time to time, but all of the prisoners with whom I correspond um, have told me that they're required to work, but that they don't get paid. In terms of manufacturing, that can be anything from, um, there's a woman's prison in Texas that manufactures paper. There have been some units that um, manufacture furniture There's been some reports that there are even 
pieces of military industrial equipment that are being produced by prisoners. Um, uniforms are very commonly manufactured by prisoners. And the fiction is that these prisoners are being taught skills behind bars, that they will then be able to come out to be able to have good jobs in the manufacturing sector. The reality is that we have seen a decrease of manufacturing in this country, as your listeners, I'm sure, are already well aware, and that mm -hmm. when prisoners come out, all that happens is that other prisoners are taking these jobs, and there's no way for anybody to be able to do this kind of work and get a living wage. I understand that one of the traits, one of the skills you're being taught is bronco-busting. Is that right? Um, I'm not you know, precisely sure what bronco busting is. Is that breaking in bulls? It's breaking in horses. Oh, yes. Okay, so in Colorado, I believe, there is a an organization that has basically been gathering these wild horses, and then prisoners have been training them. And on one hand, this is actually a pretty successful endeavor because working with animals is very therapeutic and very rehabilitative. So prisoners that say have anger management issues, you have to really be able to deal with that before a horse will respond to you. So it can be really rehabilitative work. The problem is then they come out into the free world and there's absolutely no demand for horse whisperers. Right, and so right. they find this job that they really enjoy, and now they've been trained to do, but there's nobody hiring them to be able to do this work. Lou? The, uh, the sad commentary of this is uh, in a, a, more, uh, a more sophisticated uh, manufacturing area, the uh, garment center, for all intents and purposes, has moved out of this country, and they're teaching the incarcerated uh, to be making garments. So when they come out, and they're they're doing this on old equipment, 40, 50-year-old equipment, the only place they're going to be able to get a job is if they go to Malaysia. Right, and, uh, and I think that really speaks to the fact that People talk about the prison industrial complex as though it had rehabilitative effects. And the reality of the situation is that we have a system that is basically centered around making money off these captive laborers, these slave laborers. And there's really no rehabilitative effect. You know, the United States not only has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, we also have one of the highest rates of recidivism in the world. So if these programs were working and people came out of prison and went into good manufacturing jobs, then presumably they wouldn't go back to selling drugs or sex work or whatever it is that they're having to do as crimes of poverty in order to make ends meet. But the reality is that there is no intent towards rehabilitation. All they want to do is that the powers that be that profit from these systems, they want to be able to have that made-in-the-USA label 
so that when you and I go to the store and we're trying to be conscientious consumers, we buy the shirt or whatever the, uh, the item might be thinking that, great, I'm helping to support the U.S. economy, but I don't realize that I'm really supporting sweatshop labor and a slave economy that just happens to be labeled as made in the USA. Which, of course, is against the law for us to be selling products in this country that was made by either child labor or prison labor. But meanwhile, we have a law that allows it to happen. Uh, how, how come the double standard continues to exist? Well, because the 13th Amendment didn't abolish slavery. It merely shifted who could own slaves from private slave <laughs> ownership to state slave ownership, which is why one of the taglines of this strike is end prison slavery. We really need to understand that because it also gets to the root of the racism of the situation. You know, when you look at the rates of who is incarcerated in this country, it is overwhelmingly the poor, yes, and some poor whites, but it's overwhelmingly people of color. And when we look at it as being a continuation of antebellum South slavery, then that helps to bring it into context that, you know, when we thought that we had abolished slavery, the people who were benefiting from slavery said, Oh, okay, you won't let us just incart we excuse me, you won't let us just enslave black people. Fine, we'll call them convicts instead, and then you'll let us continue to enslave them. And now, because we don't own them, we're not even necessarily as concerned with their upkeep as we were before. Like, in Texas, it is actually legal to engage in a practice called convict leasing. So a small business can just go up to a prison and basically say, I would like to rent some prisoners, and then they go off and do whatever job it is that this company requires of them, and then they're returned to the prison. And the fiction that is sold to people is that this is job training and that it's helping the prisoners to rehabilitate. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Uh, we have heard uh, many stories about some of the major U.S. corporations who uh, are using uh, prison uh, population to produce product. Uh, are, are you familiar with any of these uh, companies specifically? Yeah. I mean, so we've talked a little bit about Starbucks, McDonald's, for example, purchases meat that is sometimes raised by prisoners. Um, there's a lot of livestock raising, a lot of agricultural work that is done. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting is call centers that are being run inside of prison. And I find that really fascinating because, you know, when you call into a call center, you want to know that your sensitive data is being kept secure, right? When you're giving them your name and your date of birth and your social security number in order to verify your account, you may be giving this information to a prisoner who perhaps was, say, convicted of fraud. How is or that secure? <laughs> We've heard this, and uh, it's not made me feel particularly comfortable buying on uh, buying online anymore. Um, 
We, we matter of fact, last week we heard after the JOC, uh, the DOJ, I'm sorry, uh, ruled that uh, government contracts will no longer be placed with uh, private prisons. Now, of course, that's going to take a lot of un unwinding the web that created that in the first place. But uh, it, and we've heard that there are many uh, quality issues with regards to uh, the products that they're making, particularly for the Department of Defense. Uh, two weeks ago, it was uh, uh, the story that rebroke from 2006 was about the faulty uh, helmets uh, that the military, the Army, and the Marines are using. So th this whole process is so fraught with uh, danger and fraught with uh, uh, inequality, and uh, it's just just amazing that uh, this is continuing to go on, and we certainly do appreciate you being on our, our show, and we did have a show two weeks ago, and we're going to have another one uh, this coming Tuesday, uh, we may wind up actually having a special show tomorrow uh, uh, in, in uh, being that it's the 45th anniversary of uh, the Attica um, uh, uprising. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, we are very much appreciative that you're joining us. Uh, you had mentioned uh, pre-show that there Maybe a gentleman uh, joining us. Uh, do we know if that's happened yet? Uh, I'm signaling to our engineer, and uh, apparently that's not happened yet. Um, let us know, uh, Greg, when that's uh, happening. Um, Zura, one of the things that we uh, uncovered when we began to look into this was. Uh, that when they're an inmate, if they are able-bodied, cleared by a prison doctor to work, they don't have the option. They must work. And you had brought up when we were talking to you earlier about OSHA, that OSHA inside the walls of a prison really doesn't exist. Can you enlighten our listeners about that? So when you're working for a government entity, OSHA regulations are a little bit different than if you're not working for a government entity. But in addition, as I understand it, OSHA has basically said that they will not process claims that come in in relation to a prison because it is not a standard work site. So okay, so that's they're, they're not protected? An issue, because if you are working in, let's say, a union shop, and you're required to abide by OSHA guidelines, you are going to have to do certain things that are going to be more expensive, like if there's a blood cell, making sure that the people who are cleaning it up are using gloves. We know that often prisoners, you know, let's say that there's a fight or there is, um, a medical emergency, often they're the ones that are cleaning up the blood after other prisoners, and they're almost never given gloves. Now, that's not something that would happen outside of a prison situation in the United States. And if it did, there would be a huge OSHA violation. But as I understand it anyway, 
OSHA has basically said we're not going to honor complaints that come in from prisoners. So, you know, for those of you that are working in the manufacturing sector and you're a member of a union, I would really urge your local to pass a resolution standing in solidarity with this strike. We've already had several manufacturing locals that have expressed solidarity in this way. And I think that it's a very, very powerful statement. To a lot of people, it really makes a huge difference that labor, other parts of labor, other than the industrial workers of the world, are standing in solidarity with these striking prisoners. And, you know, obviously I'm coming at this from a more humanitarian perspective. But for those of you who are just concerned with your pocketbooks, it should be mentioned that there is no way that a well-run shop in the United States can possibly compete against a prison shop. It just can't be done. You know, if, if you're talking about workers that go into work and there's toxic mold, and if they say, I'm not going to work and I refuse to work, they get a disciplinary ticket and they're sent to solitary confinement for 90 days where there's going to be toxic mold anyway, most likely that worker is going to work regardless of what the conditions are. And so on one hand, you know, these, the people who are making the money off this say, great, we're able to get all of this really cheap labor. On the other hand, these are workers who, because they're not getting paid and they're working under awful conditions, have no incentive towards quality control. So that's how you end up with the situation, like you were mentioning earlier, with these helmets that are made, and they're made in a way that's really shoddy. But, of course, you know, the same people who are willing to exploit prisoners probably don't really care whether our soldiers are actually well-protected. They just care that they're making profit off it regardless of what's occurring. Yes, clearly we have uh, run across a, a number of news stories that have been printed over the last five or six years about a number of things that are going on. For example, as Azura was pointing out, it's very difficult to compete with a manufacturing operation inside a prison because, first of all, your labor cost is uh, like one one-hundredth of what it is uh, on, the, on the free world. Uh, they don't have to count certain overhead expenses because that overhead is part of the prison, not necessarily part of the manufacturing operation. So they, they blow off all the overhead expenses, uh, heat, lights, air conditioning, et cetera. So their cost of production is dramatically lower. Uh, we have uh, run across a number of names that we're working to uh, validate from major corporations who have at least in the past used prison slave labor um, and they have uh, some of them have talked about bringing jobs back to America we're going to take those jobs that we moved offshore and we're going to bring them back to America and as Azura pointed out we're going to put a made in America label on it what they didn't tell you was that the work went inside the walls of a prison not inside the walls of a manufacturing plant so it's it's a really kind of a an ugly situation. Uh, Lou and I are both personally incensed by the fact, as is Azura, that 
It is uh, akin to slavery. If anybody's watched the movie Gone with the Wind, and they have seen uh, the scene in there where they are running a, a uh, logging mill, a lumber mill, and somebody brings in a group of a chain gang uh, uh, black slaves, and they're going to run that. Those are all convicts for convict labor, treated very badly back then. Uh, that's the kind of thing that's still there. It's just not talked about a great deal. So uh, we appreciate, Azura, that you're making some noise about this, and, and it sounds like you have something happening, did you say, in 24 states tomorrow? So we believe that prisoners will go on strike in at least 20 states of the union whether that's in juvenile detention center immigrant detention centers um state and city jails state prisons and federal prisons but in addition in over 50 cities there are solidarity actions occurring and those are the people who have bothered to let the national know so i really expect that when it's all said and done it's probably going to be closer to 60 outside actions um so what we're seeing is a great deal of solidarity you know and like i said earlier many industrial unions are issuing statements of solidarity recognizing that the prisoners whose labor is being exploited not only is it a human rights issue, but it's also directly impacting their bottom line. You know, I believe in the great power of manufacturing of the United States. I believe that American factory workers are capable of creating some of the best goods in the world. But we have to be given the opportunity. You know, I teach at a community college. A lot of my students are going into manufacturing construction, building trades, um, solar panel construction, things of that nature. And this country mm -hmm. is capable of putting a solar panel on every roof. We are capable of rebuilding our bridges and our roads and our infrastructure, really focusing on having trains in the way that we used to and public transportation. We could have systems of great cooperation and infrastructure in this country and we could put every single person who's currently out of work in the manufacturing sector back to work and pay them a good wage with pension and health benefits and having them work in good working conditions if we just took some of the money that is currently going into prison because you know the average cost of housing an inmate the, the tagline that's often used is a year in the pen is more expensive than a year at Penn State. If somebody is being held in administrative segregation or solitary confinement, it can be upwards of $45,000 a year in order to house just one inmate. So if we as a society decided that drug crimes or sex crimes or a lot of these things that probably shouldn't be illegal or are really crimes of poverty, if instead of incarcerating folks, we provided them with good jobs and did work release programs, not inside of prisons, but that really actually were giving job training, we can put lots of people back to work through just public work programs. And a lot of your listeners who are out of work could be doing something really productive 
but instead we're producing goods in a way that just doesn't make any sense. I, I don't recall the percentage, but it's extremely high of those 2.2 million people who are in jail in this country are in for uh, minor drug charges. And the DEA two weeks ago uh, restated that, for example, marijuana is a class one drug, which means if you're dealing in marijuana, you can wind up going to jail for 20 years. Um, it, it hardly seems, it's almost as if they're doing this on purpose to keep the prisons full so that we can have this cheap labor producing government goods for the government use. And it's, uh, it's, it's, to me, I'm not sure who the criminals are. Precisely. I mean, just so that we're clear for some of your listeners that not may, be, not, may not be aware, a Schedule One substance means that it has no medical benefit and is deadly. I don't know of anybody in the history of humanity that has ever died of a cannabis overdose, <laughs> but I do know people who treat glaucoma and fibromyalgia and nausea and, you know, all sorts of side effects relating to chemotherapy, relating to nausea with cannabis, and do so effectively. So for cannabis to remain a Schedule One substance does not make any sense until we start to think of it in terms of who is making money off this. The pharmaceutical companies are making money because they can continue to sell drugs that are not as effective, are more toxic to the human body. And the prison industrial complex continues to make money because people get caught selling these drugs. And then because of mandatory minimums, they go away for a very, very long time. And especially with cannabis, they can often say that it's a federal crime because, oh, the seeds cross state lines. And now, you know, you get caught with a pound of weed and you're going away for a long time. And somebody is going to make money off you for that. They just had a case hit the news here, actually two cases, kind of back-to-back. One is a case of a prisoner who was uh, incarcerated for 40 years to life on a cannabis charge. They reduced it to time served at 21 years and released him. In the same week that they released a rapist who had gotten six months and they released him after 90 days. So the sentencing guidelines in this country have gone nuts. It needs to be corrected, and I understand that Congress in a sentence could change the standing of cannabis from a Schedule One to a Schedule Three drug. But because they have a lot of lobbyists who don't want that to happen, it isn't happening. This is a stupid tragedy. It is. I mean, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee is an explicitly prison abolitionist institution. Not everybody in our coalition is, but we believe in a world eventually without prisons. So obviously seeing drug policy that makes sense, but also if somebody is an addict, they need to go to rehab. They don't need to go to prison. And it doesn't make sense the way that we decide that certain substances are highly dangerous and that people need to be incarcerated 
for selling them when we have pharmaceutical companies that are selling drugs that often have side effects that are far worse, yet those are somehow managing to get through the FDA approval process. I mean, and that's a conversation for another time, but certainly is also a system that probably needs to be overhauled and certainly is more interested in making profit for the few versus being concerned with the overall community interest. And that's really the problem. I mean, when you say, I don't know who the real criminals are, I couldn't agree with you more. It seems to me that everybody I know who's serving time at the end of the day really didn't do anything that was anywhere near as wrong as some of these injustices that we're just now describing. Well, I think part of part of the issue is, and, and you said it before, about you know, about making the system needs to make money to support itself. For example, we heard that the uh, Bail Bondsman Association is appealing to the courts to raise uh, bail amounts, and uh, gee, I guess that means also that their ten percent fee would go up at the same time. Uh, it, it's it's really a tragedy to uh, incarcerate these people when they can't get their bail, and some are forgotten about. They're just left to uh, rot in jail uh, for no, nothing charges. So this is uh, this has really become a, a terrible situation, and uh, we certainly wish you uh, the the best. Uh, uh, if, if that's the right and appropriate term, the best for tomorrow's uh, uh, dem- nationwide demonstration. And uh, we wholeheartedly support your efforts. And please, for your listeners, one thing that we're very concerned about is repression. And that's something that we haven't talked about. But I, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are people who have gone on strike. And you know, they know the dangers of dealing with scab workers and things of that nature. But when you're going on strike inside of a prison, you are really putting your life on the line. Because often when you work stop, the guards are just not going to deliver food to you. We've had reports of units where water and electricity was turned off from 6 a.m. to midnight. And then entire cell blocks were gassed in retaliation for people striking. I mean, I hope that this strike is able to be effective and peaceful, but we don't have any control over how the guards are going to behave. And there's a very real possibility that people are going to have chemical agents sent on them, are going to be beaten. There may be death going into the strike, and we really need people from the outside when we hear of repression to call in to the authorities and say, we stand in solidarity with the workers who are striking. Uh, question, do you know if, in fact, that there is going to be any uh, major uh, media coverage on this? Well, I've certainly seen Mother Jones is covering, um, The Nation is covering. We've had some requests for television interviews from major news sources, ABC, um, Fox, things of that nature. So we're right. hoping that there's going to be national media coverage, Um, you know, we're really at a tipping point where so many options are occurring in so many different places that 
to a certain extent, it seems like the mainstream media is going to have to be forced to cover it. On the other hand, we know that the powers that be really don't want this story being told, which is why we've been focusing so much more on getting the word out through independent media. You know, so I'm sure Democracy Now! is going to cover it and things of that nature, but... You know, is this going to be on the 6 o'clock news tomorrow? Is it going to be on the 6 o'clock news on Monday? That remains to be seen. But I do encourage people to write letters to the editor. And, you know, if you're a student and you have access to a student newspaper, post this on Facebook. Um, There's a Twitter storm that's happening tomorrow as well. Let's trend end prison slavery. You know, there's a certain extent to which if we make enough noise, they're not going to be able to deny that this is happening. In Texas, when the prisoner strikes first went down in April of this year, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice not only denied that there was repression, they denied that there were strikes going on. And we had letters upon letters from inmates saying, we laid it down, you know, we butcher animals and we refuse to work in this unit. And TDCJ just said, nope, there was no repression because there weren't any strikes. So where media, and especially independent media, really can be very helpful is that if you are uplifting the voices of prisoners and their supporters and are really doing a solid job of getting these stories out there and labor unions are passing resolution after resolution, standing in solidarity with these workers, then there comes a time where the mainstream media just can't ignore this story. And we're hoping that we're creating that tipping point so that this country can really start to have a conversation about ending mass incarceration versus just allowing, as the Occupy movement put it, the 1% to continue to just make money off them. Well, we certainly stand by you in solidarity, and uh, uh, we will be uh, airing uh, this show, and we're also we will be doing social media tomorrow and joining in the uh, uh, Let's Trend uh, movement. And uh, we really, really appreciate your time on the show. And, uh, Tim, any parting words? Well, we've been talking with Azura Crispino, who is the media co-chair of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, about uh, prison slave labor, something that, uh, you know, when Lou and I stumbled across the story a couple of months ago, We were rather shocked that the 13th Amendment is being used in this way in the 21st century. I mean, racism in this country is clearly a big issue. It has not gone away. It does exist. And then to run across this, that's an effect. Slavery still exists in this country, just in a different form, uh, to a piece of writing that probably should be abolished. And then its impact on manufacturing. We had to jump on the story. And Azura, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, and I would love to come back on. And thank you so much for your listeners for caring about this issue. We appreciate thank you your for time joining us. And uh, we look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.